Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. William A. Hasseltine, and we're going to be talking about his latest book, Science is a Superpower, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease and the Heroes Who Made It Possible. And we're also going to be talking about two of his favorite books, uh, The Black Stallion and Dear Me, Letters to Myself for All My Emotions. One quick note, I neglected to mention Dr. Hasseltine's website in my introduction uh, to our interview, and that website is williamhasseltine.com. Now, just like my last two podcasts, after the interview with Dr. Hasseltine, I'd like you to stick around for something a little bit different, and this is the last time we're going to be doing this. As I've mentioned a few times already now, my debut middle grade novel, Hushabai, is coming out on August 24th. In the previous podcast, I read chapters three and four, and in the one before that, I read the first two chapters of the book. Today, I'm going to be reading chapters five and six, and this will conclude my reading from the novel. Uh, The book, of course, has many chapters after that, and if you want more information about it, go to my website, jodylemont.com. And like I said last time, if you just want to listen to my interview with Dr. Hasseltine, absolutely no problem. But if you want to hear the rest of the story, uh, I hope you'll enjoy, or at least find a little creepy, please keep listening. And of course, if you want to hear chapters one and two, uh, you can go back to the podcast I did with Ben Zhu on July 19th, and then chapters three and four that are at the end of the podcast I did with Stephen Banks on August 2nd. My guest today is Dr. William A. Hasseltine. Uh, Dr. Hasseltine is a scientist, chair and president of the global health think tank, Axis Health International, and author of such books as COVID, A Family Guide to COVID, A COVID Back to School Guide, and My Lifelong Fight Against Disease from Polio and AIDS to COVID-19. His most recent book is Science is a Superpower, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease and the Heroes Who Made It Possible. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Hasseltine. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your time. As I mentioned, your most recent book is uh, Science is a Superpower. And uh, for uh, readers who haven't had a chance to go out and check that out yet, can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? What's the basic premise of this book? Uh, The basic premise is science is a great life, a great career. And it's something that young people should consider. Uh, That's the premise of my uh, longer autobiography, Uh, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease is supposed to show people of college age that uh, life in science can be a very richly rewarding life. And it's also to show that science is a uh, can be humanistic and focus on humanistic values as well as I have during my life. But the science is a superpower is to encourage younger people to really seriously consider uh, life in science. Why a superpower? A superpower gives you the power to save the world. Science can give you that power. One person who's made a discovery and reduced it to practicality can really save the world. That's what Alexander Fleming did with penicillin. It's what Jonas Salk uh, did with the polio vaccine. It's what Kismet Corbett did when she created the Moderna mRNA vaccine helped really save hundreds of millions of people's lives. One person can do that. And I think that is uh, something that 
should be exciting for science as for for young children. And in addition to that, it's just a great life. You work with great people. You work with people all over the world. Uh, and I've been asked by a lot of kids, can you support yourself? The answer is definitely yes, you can. And what was your inspiration for putting this book together, specifically with a younger, with a young audience in mind? Well, I've had the benefit of having great mentors my entire life and a society that valued science and really opened doors uh, for me uh, that I had just had to walk through and made the whole path to becoming a scientist. And then as a scientist, making that whole path easier. And uh, along the way, one of my, I would say, greatest mentors was uh, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I was headed for medical school, uh, but he fished me out of a chemistry class, a group of some 15 of us out of 3,000, and said, how would you like to spend the summer at the university? We'll pay for your uh, room and board and give you a little money to live on. Uh, but... During that time, you'll meet all the Nobel Prize winners of the university, get to know, study their work, work for a week, and then meet them for a day and talk to them. And I thought, wow, that sounds fantastic. So here's a man. He was a fisherman for scientists. I'll tell you the most interesting thing. After he became a tenured Harvard professor, which is a pretty good achievement, I went to see him and I thought, oh, he'll be proud of me. He didn't pay any attention to me at all. All he paid attention to was my children, who tried to make them scientists as well. So he's sort of my uh, inspiration for what you should do if you had a successful career. He had, was a wonderful scientist, made many great discoveries, but he had a passion for education. And I benefited from that, and I wanted to pass a little bit of that on. And you talk a little bit in the book about, you know, sort of uh, qualities you brought into it, you know, when you're younger, just curious about the world, a willingness to ask questions and observe things, but also thinking about, you know, how can I make a difference in the world? And do you, do you find you that same sort of qualities in the people that you've met over the year, that those that same sort of curiosity and, you know, looking at things and then thinking about what can I do with uh, everything that I'm seeing here? You know, one of the great things about uh, younger people is how curious they are. The whole world is new to them and they have a question. The typical is why, get an answer, why, get an answer, why. But that's really what science does. That's the whole process. And so that fundamental human trait is the basis of scientific inquiry. But in my own case, I had a different motivation uh, why I was headed to be a doctor. And that is, as a young child, I saw disease up close. My beloved mother was quite ill with many diseases, uh, very serious life-threatening diseases, some of them, uh, as I was uh, growing up, starting at about age four and five. And I would sit by her bedside, stand by it, and I would really just think it was unfair that somebody I loved so much could suffer so much. And I'm really determined then that if there was any way I could help relieve human suffering, I would do it. That's what I decided I would do as a young person. I was really bent on doing that. And at first I thought the best way to do that was to be a doctor. But I'm squeamish. I don't like the sight of blood. And uh, that isn't good for a doctor. My sister, on the other hand, loves to do operations. And she's a doctor and put her hands inside of people. But that wasn't for me. But I was really lucky to meet some great scientists. They told me early on, you know, if you're really good at science, you can do more for humanity through science than you can as a doctor. You can heal more people through science than through practicing medicine. 
and many of them were very successful doctors and scientists. And they said, you know, if we had a choice, we wouldn't be doctors and scientists, we'd be scientists. And that made a big impression on me. And it's, it's you know, each person is different. As I say, my sister likes blood, and helping people that are really, really ill. And I like to think about those things, but I don't like to see them. And science is such a big umbrella term for so many different things in the world, in the natural world, and, and the universe and things like that. So uh, so there's all sorts of things that a person can find within that huge sort of field of what we call science. Yes, absolutely. It, and increasingly, science is collaborative and uh, multidisciplinary. One thing I realized as I was training to be a scientist, and I knew that I wanted to focus on health, is I decided I would learn, I would go to the edges of what was known about physics, chemistry, uh, and even mathematics, as well as biology, so that if there was any question I needed to tackle, I could do it. So I got a degree in uh, chemical, in, uh, in physical chemistry at Berkeley. I then um, uh, went to Harvard and it was a seeking a, a degree in what was called uh, chemical physics, um, studied that in great detail and ended up getting a PhD in biophysics. Um, but along the way, I wanted to have every tool at my disposal to answer the questions. I can tell you it was very valuable because at different times in my career, I've used many of those different skills. But a skill you wouldn't normally think of as being important is history human culture, and art. Because science is a fantastic tool that allows you to answer questions, but it doesn't tell you what questions to ask. That has to come from somewhere else. And for me, it came from inside of me, from my desire to heal. And so science is like a, a super powerful tool, but it depends what you direct it at, or much simpler. Think of a screwdriver. You can screw a screw or screw in a screw. You can also use it to stir your soup. Uh, you can use it as a weapon and stab somebody with it. Or you can open a can of paint. All those things depends on the user and your intent. And so you get, I got my intent from the humanities, trying to do something that I thought everybody needed. And that works even today. I've been working 14, 15 hours a day trying to understand COVID and explain it to people. I'm in touch with all the world leaders who are doing the groundbreaking research, trying to help them do a little bit better than they're doing. I try to help them connect the people who can turn their discoveries into new drugs or vaccines or diagnostic tools. And uh, here I am, you know, have three careers later, very engaged in the topic of our time. Yeah, I know you've worked both in the mobilizing efforts around COVID and uh, AIDS, um, and, and and both of those. I, I'm, it's interesting just the parallels there. Both of the 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 you know the, the people joining together and and doing you know work to create these you know amazing breakthroughs that really help a lot of people. At the same time, there's also this unfortunate parallel about um, a lot of sort of misinformation or people being not really understanding certain things. And, and, and there's those unfortunate parallels too. What, what do you think it is that some people are just misinformed about science and what it does or what it can do? Well, I think, first of all, we have a serious education deficit in the country. We do not educate people deeply and thoroughly. And it works to our disadvantage in many ways. Uh, but in one way, 
it really dis is a disadvantage for people's own health. That's really serious. We need a lot more education about science. For example, if you ask most people what a virus is, they don't know. What's the difference between a virus, a bacteria, and a human cell? What is a B cell? What's an antibody? Most people don't know. We should have that basic literacy, not just about biology, but by all of science. So that's the, the first thing. Basic scientific literacy is, is really important. But then, and I, I hate to say it, but it seems to be true that both for HIV AIDS and for COVID, some people use a natural disaster for political advantage. And that is heartbreaking because there are lives that could have been saved. Lives these people could have helped people, even if they're not educated. People know enough they want to protect their children, themselves and their children and their families. And rather than put obstacles in people's way, the whole point of leadership, especially political leadership, is to help us protect ourselves. And when I don't see that, it just breaks my heart. And so what do you, for, for the young people who hopefully will get into science and start making a difference in the world and, you know, hopefully informing other peoples, what's, what's one really big piece of advice you give to a young person who wants to pursue their interests in science in, in, in whatever way that might turn out? The most important advice I would give is follow your curiosity. Do what you love to do. Uh, I love to do science. You know, I thought I'd be a doctor, but I turned out it wasn't built for me. But I just love to ask and answer questions. There's no, no greater satisfaction than asking an important question, finding an answer that makes a difference to millions of people. And I've had the great fortune to do that. Let me just give you sort of an off topic. Uh, one of my favorite discoveries was I was uh, interested in how cancer drugs work, but I realized that also could help me understand how radiation work, in particular, how sunlight caused cancer. And so I started studying that. We got some brilliant students to work with me and we made some really surprising discoveries. As you may know, skin cancer is one of the biggest problems uh, in our world today. There's, you know, I would say maybe one out of 10 people or maybe even one out of five people suffers from skin cancer during their life. And we can make a difference to that and, and have. And so those are the kinds of things that, and this was just began as pure curiosity driven research. And then the other great thing about being a scientist is you have these wonderful students you know, when I was at Harvard, I felt I was in Aladdin's cave of the mind. There were these jewels, sparkling minds all around me. Uh, young people, people who were students, graduate students, postdoc, visiting scientists, other professors. It was so rich, the environment. It was just exciting every day to bump into somebody in the hallway and say, hey, what did you do? And what did you find? And the same thing, a conversation with people all over the world. What you find in these professions is people who are really trying to do something good for humanity. That's what their goal in life is. And when you're with a group of people like that, it's really uplifting. Uh, is there a part of the book that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens with young people is that they get discouraged early on. And I did not have an easy childhood. As I mentioned, my mother was sick. I had a very difficult dad. And um, 
as a result of that, I did very poorly in school. So I'm going to read you something uh, that I wrote in Science as a Superpower. Anyone can be a hero. Science values curiosity and opens a pathway to a wonderful life. Life of meaning, travel, faithful friends, inspirational colleagues, a business and philanthropy and political impact. Science is a path for students of every kind. I wish I'd known that back when, when I was in fourth grade and flunking. I can still feel the shame of being sent to the punishment corner of the classroom by my teacher, Mrs. Whistler. Behaving in class and doing schoolwork didn't come naturally to me. I spent too much time those days worrying about my mom's health. I had a really hard time focusing on school. All that early anxiety had curled itself into a rock, which lived stubbornly in the pit of my stomach. But deep in my belly, close to where that anxious rock sat, was a flicker of hope and determination. Fifth grade. I wasn't held back, thank you very much. Brought a welcome change. This was a year I discovered reading. When I was reading, I felt less alone. My anxiety would disappear, and instead I felt moments of clarity and confidence. Nothing was wrong with me after all. My first favorite book was The Black Stallion by Walter Farley. I read it in one gulp, hiding a light under the covers one night to finish. The next day, I raced to the library to take home all of Farley's sequels and many other books, too. Soon I was having reading competitions with my friends to see who could read the most books per week. And at home, where family trouble always seemed to brew, I could retreat to my room, shut the door, focus my imagination on a better place. Reading saved me and opened my mind to the richness of the world. My confidence increased, my curiosity took off. By seventh grade, I'd overcome my problems in school and I was at the top of my class. Take that, Mrs. Whistler. But also, thank you, Mrs. Whistler, for pushing me to persevere. I want children who read this and young people to read this, that a slow start does not mean a slow finish. As so many times, we just need to give children a chance because we forget that not everybody is going to develop the same rate, and that doesn't mean anything, you know. I'll tell you what it feels like to be stupid because I was stupid. Now, you might say, how could a Harvard professor who's done all the things I've done be stupid? Well, I was functionally stupid because I was emotionally troubled. And what it feels like is confused. You just don't understand what you're told. It's a terrible feeling. I can still remember what it feels like, and it doesn't feel good. But fortunately, I wasn't stupid. I was just emotionally stunted. And I got over that thanks to reading. And speaking of reading, I want to talk about you you picked two books in particular um, that have been very important to you. One is uh, one you've just mentioned, The Black Stallion uh, by Walter Farley, which was first published in 1941. The other one is a more recent book, actually published just this year, uh, called Dear Me, Letters to Myself for All My Emotions. And that was written by Donna uh, Tetral. What's that? Hard name. Took me five times in the interview to get her name right. I interviewed her the other day, and it took us five times to get her name right. Tetro. Tetro. Okay. I didn't. I definitely did not get that right. Okay. Well, let's start with the the Black Stallion. You just been talking about that, and such an important book for sort of just opening up so many things, reading, and just sort of opening up the you know ideas and things like that. Uh, let's just start first for readers who may not have actually had a chance to read The Black Stallion. Can you just talk just very briefly uh, basically what the book is about? Well, 
It's a wonderful book because it fulfills every young person's fantasy. Here's a boy returning from India uh, in the 40s on a, a tramp steamer uh, and a big, they lo- load this amazing black horse, wild and fierce. And the boy begins to make friends with it on the boat, although it's a very difficult uh, horse. And then the boat is in a big storm and sinks. And uh, Alec, the boy, is saved by having a life jacket but holding on to the halter. And the stallion actually pulls him to this island. Then it's a wonderful adventure of how he makes friends with the horse on the island, how they're rescued, how he takes the horse home, and then becomes a racer. But what it did for me is I was Alec. I was that kid. I was there, and I wasn't at home miserable. I was on an island. I was with a black, uh, fantastically strong horse. I was riding him to a championship uh, race, the great championship, and my parents, who were very doubtful, were helping me along. And so I identified with that kid. And, you know, I just picked up the book again for this interview, and I started reading it, and I was just as absorbed when I started reading it again as I was when I was nine years old and picked it up to start reading it in fifth grade. It is a great book. Let me read a little bit about uh, from this book. You'll see what I mean. So the scene is they've just gotten the storm. He's, he's opened the black stallion's cage, but the boat is sinking. It's cracked in half. There's lightning everywhere. People are trying to rip his life jacket off. There's a railing who's got a hole in it. Then he saw the black. That's the horse. His head held high, his nostrils blown out with excitement. Suddenly he snorted and plunged straight for the rail. And Alec, Alec was paralyzed. He couldn't move. One hand was on the rail, which was broken at this point, leaving nothing between him and the open water. The black swerved as he came near him. The boy realized that the stallion was making for the hole. The horse's shoulder grazed him as he swerved, and Alec went flying into space. He felt the water close over his head. When he came up, his first thought was of the ship. And then he heard an explosion. He saw the drake settling deep into the water. Frantically, he looked around for a lifeboat, but there was none in sight. Then he saw the black swimming not more than 10 yards away. Something swished by him, a rope, and it was attached to the black's halter, the same rope they'd used to bring the stallion aboard the boat, which they'd never been able to get close enough to untie. Without stopping to think, Alec grabbed a hold of it, and then was pulled through the water into the oncoming seas. Pretty vivid. Oh, yes. And I was that boy. And that, uh, I tell you. And then there's, you know, four other books and The Son of the Black Stallion. It was, it, but that started me on a reading jag. And I never stopped. And I haven't stopped to this day. You know, I get my little messages on Kindle. Congratulations. This is the 122nd straight week you've been reading. <laughs> I'm wondering too, as 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 reading your book and then as reading this book, and I thought about Alec on the island, and uh, how he he learns to ride the horse through trial and error. I wonder if that was something that might have been that that sort of idea that maybe even fed into this uh, as you got more involved with science, just the idea of, of trying things out, not getting it right, but to keep on going until you know you'll learn something. Well, that's that's a part of my. I don't think it's in the science as a superpower, but it's in my autobiography. And the, a scientist sat me down, very famous scientist, when I'd been a postdoctor fellow, and I had this fancy fellowship. In fact, it was at a house that was so fancy there was a fireplace in the bathroom to give you an idea. 
Okay, it was fancy. I'd never seen anything like it. So he sits me down over breakfast. He says, young man, being a scientist is hard. You fail most of the time. I said, yeah, I'm learning that. And I can tell you, and I go through all my failures before success. I'd failed a bunch of times. And even when you succeed, if you don't succeed doing the right thing, like I succeeded in disproving a couple of people, nobody likes you. You don't get points for disproving things that people have done in the past. He said, you know, unless you have great self-confidence, and the way he put it was the following, unless your mother and your father believe you were God's gift to the world, and you believe them, you'll have trouble being a scientist. I said, well, at least my mother did. <laughs> and uh, so that's, you, you really need perseverance. You know, the way I would describe being a scientist when you're really doing something that's unknown is you don't know how, unless you confront the unknown, how unknown unknown is. And my image, my visual image is being deep into a coal mine, knowing that there's diamonds somewhere down there, but you're maybe half a mile down, it's pitch black, you're on your belly, chipping away, sweating like crazy, with a little light and a small hammer and chipping away at a black rock face, hoping a diamond will turn up. That's what it feels like. I've been fortunate enough that diamonds have turned up. Uh, so you have to dig it in the right place at the right time with the right tools. But uh, that's what it's like. But it's, it's really, if you think that that diamond, as I did, would help a lot of people. That's what kept me going. And it was a perseverance despite many, many setbacks along the way, just like Alex did in this book. He had a lot of setbacks. You know, that horse was not tamed. It was hard to ride. And that's part of life. Life is not tamed. There's no, no guidebook to life other than what you decide to give it. There's not even a discernible purpose to life other than the purpose you give it. But I can say, looking back on my life, I'm proud of what I was able to do. Very proud that I've been able to help people all over the world and train generations of people. One of the most satisfying things for me today is I am working with my students, students, students. These are young people. They're in their 20s. And I'm working with them as an equal, helping them understand and they're helping me understand these are the people that I trained, the people that they trained, and the people that they trained. And it's a, it's a wonderful continuity of, uh, of life. You know, they say in New York that being a parent is the investment and grandchildren are the dividend. Well, that's in spades in science. To see the people you train do well and then help you. Most of the people that are working on COVID today got trained by us who worked on HIV. And many of the people are HIV researchers turned into COVID researchers. That's one of the ways we have our vaccines. And you know, there's direct line. Talk about direct line. I worked with Tony Fauci for many years, helping him get funding at NIH for the work on HIV AIDS. The tools that we developed in those days, the tools that he pioneered for vaccine trials for HIV are exactly the tools that we used to find COVID vaccines and to test them so fast. The government rules and regulations for how to push things through fast. Tony and I worked on when we were trying to counter the threat of anthrax. My postdoc box office got attacked in Washington, D.C. with anthrax in the year 2001. And I developed a drug 
that can save it people from anthrax if they get it. But we were able to do that in two years, not 20 years, thanks to new legislation we rammed through over that time. And that is exactly the legislation that was used to help get these vaccines produced and so, so quickly and onto the market. So, you know, when you look back over your life and you say, hey, things I did then helped then, but they help now too, it makes you feel good. And I think that's the kind of thing that young people should think about when they think about going into science. It can be a fabulous career uh, with wonderful people. It isn't easy, but it is, the rewards are immense. Personal rewards are immense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned that. I think s some people don't realize when we talk about the speed of the vaccine, and it was very fast, but that we don't, people don't often think about or realize there's actually years and years of other people's work that's being built upon. Well, I'll give you an example right now. I'm working with a group of friends uh, trying to create a herpes simplex vaccine. We're about four years into the process, and we see another eight, eight years ahead of us, six years ahead of us. That's how fast it usually takes, and that's pretty fast. So to get it in nine months is, is super phenomenal. And it's because of the work and the, all the hard work that went before. Uh, now, the other book uh, that you picked out is a, it's a much more recent uh, book, uh, Dear Me, Letters to Myself for All My Emotions. And uh, it is a, it's also a, a picture book, so it's for much younger uh, children than uh, uh, The Black Stallion. Uh, so um, can you talk a little bit about what this book is and what it means to you in particular, why, why you chose this book? Well, I chose this book because it touches on something that most people don't really focus on as much as they probably should, which is your emotions. You know, when you think about scientists, you don't think of emotion. But believe me, it's just as emotional as the Olympics. When you're doing the work, you are excited, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're competitive, you're angry, all of those feelings. And it's really important for people to understand their feelings. And it's all too often Parents will say, oh, don't be angry, don't be this, don't be that. This is a book that uh, I found that actually I, I liked it. I liked the graphics. I liked the topic. But I liked it even more when my grandchildren, four, seven, and nine, took a look at it and really were interested in this book. In fact, even after I had read it to them and put it down, they picked it up again. The, not the four-year-old, but the older two. And that says something. And what this book does by Donna uh, Tretro is allow, give space for children to think about their feelings. And I'm going to read you a little passage because the, the theme of the book is this child has a lot of different conflicting emotions. And the mother says, okay, it's fine to feel those emotions, but why don't you do something about it? Why don't you write letters to yourself? about your feelings, and then you can use those letters so when you have the same feelings over again, you can go back and see something positive of how it worked out. So let me uh, read a short passage. So given, the, this is, so given the pandemic we're living through and the impact it has on our mental health, and I've just written another book called uh, uh, COVID-Related uh, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, What It Is and What to Do About It. Uh, a lot of children might be feeling worried and confused. So this is a passage from the book. 
I reach for mom's hand when we visit grandma at the hospital. It's cold here and I have to be quiet. Today, I'm worried. That reminds me of myself when I was with my mom. Then this is the letter the child writes to himself. Dear me. That's why the book is called Dear Me, Letters to Myself. Feeling worried is just another one of my emotions. Mom says she's worried too. It's okay for us to feel this way. We can take deep breaths to feel better. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. Love me. Okay, and there's, of course, a very nice picture to go with that. And it goes through anger, frustration, happiness, sadness, each with a very relevant situation, situations that all children, all of us uh, experience. And, you know, I found that the little letters of Dear Me were helpful to me. I'm no kid anymore. But, you know, I have a theory of personality that we're built like onions, that we never lose the personality we had originally. If you poke through and give us the same stimulus, just like I was reading this book, The Black Stallion, I haven't changed. I felt the same excitement picking up and reading the first few chapters of that book. I felt when I was nine years old. Well, we have that nine-year-old inside us. I have a 15-year-old. I have a 25-year-old. I have a 45-year-old. I have a 65-year-old. I even have a 75-year-old inside of me. All of those people. But we are composites. We are not those people never disappear. And I think that's why a book like this, which is so deep and touches something so important as our feelings, resonates with me today. I'll tell you another realization. I've been thinking about writing a graphic autobiography, uh, taking it another step. And in doing the research for that, I looked at about 10 graphic uh, biographies. E.O. Wilson, The Ant-Man, famous physicist. It took me about an hour to make my way through each one, and I loved it. I learned things I never would have bothered to learn otherwise because it was in such a simple and powerful format. Graphic nonfiction is a powerful, powerful tool, which I encourage a lot of teachers to uh, to use. I think it's underused. You know, I remember when the first one came out, Watchmen, my children at that time were, uh, you know, in, in high school and they loved it. They said, Dad, you got to look at this. And I thought, huh, what are you talking about? And then a little bit later on, they started working with people who made these graphic novels. And I still didn't quite get it. It took me until this year to get it, but I get it now. It is a very powerful, and you know, and to see a six-year-old pick up and go through the life of E.O. Wilson and be fascinated by the pictures and start asking me, what's this and what's that and what kind of ant is that and why are these ants fighting with those ants? It's fabulous, so I really, uh, I really uh, like uh, that format. I think it's a great format. 
Oh, I, I, I agree. Absolutely. I've always I've been an advocate for a long time for graphic novels. Um, and I've, I've said this many times on the podcast, I think whatever book it is that can get a child to be interested in to read and to start reading is a good book, whether it's um, a graphic novel or um, a, a picture book or a comic book or the Black Stallion. You know, what, whatever book it is that gets that child to so, sort of open the door to reading and then exploring all sorts of different things is always a good way to start. And graphic novels are sometimes a terrific way to do that. You know, Joey, one thing I want, since I know your audience is teachers and other uh, educators and librarians, one thing that I was planning on doing and have been doing actually every week is talking to a classroom or during the summer uh, science camps. Uh, and I love to talk to kids directly. My best interactions were the kids themselves were asking questions at one science camp that had they were all interpreted through a, a camp counselor. But, um, you know, if you contact me through my office, and you know how to do that through Anna Dirksen, my communications director, uh, I will set up with any class from age, say, 7 to 17. Uh, I'd be happy to speak to those classes about, um, about science as a superpower. I find it enormously energizing to listen to the questions that uh, children ask. I think the most... The uh, important question that I was asked is, can you make money being a scientist? Can you make a living? And uh, and that's why I answered that question, because it is a big question for kids. You know, they know they have to make a living, and science is a, a great way to do it. And you're, um, I know you have a, a, a website, that, uh, and, and that would be the, would that be the best place for people to... That's a good place, though, yes. It, very good place. Yeah. All right. And I didn't mention it at the top of the thing. It is uh, www.williamhasseltine.com. So easy to remember. Right. It's spelled with an S because everybody spells it with a Z. Oh, OK. And with an S. Yes. It's spelled with an H. H-A-S-E-L-T-I-N-E. William Hasseltine. So if they want to contact you, that is probably the best way to do it, to go to um, onto the website. And I believe there's a tab there for connecting. And that's yes. the best way to get hold of you. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, um, Dr. Hasseltine, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to me to talk about uh, your own book, Science is a Superpower, and uh, as well as The Black Stallion and um, Dear Me Letters to Myself, and just talking about the science and the possibilities and the uh, of of what science can do and uh, and for what young people can um, who who are interested and in what they can do to sort of uh, get more involved if that's uh, something that that's of an interest. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me about all that today. Well, thank you for your interest, Jody, and uh, good luck to you. You can find information about Dr. Hasseltine at williamhasseltine.com. Hushabye by Jody Lee Mott. Chapter 5 Watch, you'll see. That's what Antonia had said right before the milk exploded. Then there was that big grin she'd had stuck on her face after the whole show. At first I wondered if she'd had something to do with it. But that made no sense. I mean, how could a girl who wore a baby duck barat pull off such a stunt? The answer came easily. She hadn't done anything. 
It was only a coincidence. It was just like Antonia to take credit for a coincidence. Once, when she was seven, she dreamed it would rain. Later that day, despite the weatherman's predictions, it drizzled a little. For a long time after, she insisted she'd made it happen, and she was a dream wizard, even though she could never make any of her other dreams come true. This was the same thing. A coincidence. A very weird coincidence, sure, but still a coincidence. The cafeteria incident was all anyone in the school talked about the rest of the afternoon. The atomic milk bomb and revenge of the cows were a few of the names I overheard. The teachers were the worst. After shushing the kids and scolding them for gossiping, they'd whisper to each other and hide their smirks behind closed fists like they were coughing. No one bothered with me. The milk bomb made me invisible. Even Madison didn't evil-eye me when she walked into Ms. Crosetti's social studies class, the only class we shared, thankfully. She was too busy chattering with the twins. As first days went, this one hadn't turned out half bad. And heading to Mr. Cap's art class at the end of it was the whipped cream frosting on the stale and just barely edible first day of school cupcake. I knew I'd be okay once I got to Mr. Cap's class. He was the best, and I loved knowing he was going to be my art teacher again. He never asked me any embarrassing questions, and he always had little tasks for me to do, like cleaning brushes or sorting colored beads. And about once a week, he had me draw a dog. The dog thing started the year before in November, just before the Thanksgiving break. We were supposed to be constructing a color wheel. Usually I do what I'm told, but that day I was copying the little beagle from the cover of Shiloh onto the back of my notebook. I'd borrowed the book that morning from the library, mostly because of the cover. I love any book about animals, and I'd read Black Beauty about a thousand times, but something about that dog's face just warmed my heart. Daddy used to talk about getting a dog, but talk was all he ever did about it, which was pretty typical for him. The trailer park we lived in didn't allow pets, but that didn't keep me from daydreaming about a cute pup to cuddle. So that day, without thinking, I picked up my pencil and started drawing. My face burned once I realized Mr. Cap was watching me. Last year, I hadn't known him very well, or how nice he could be. I was so scared, I didn't even try to hide what I was doing. I waited for the red-faced screaming and the detention slip I probably had coming. After a minute of silence, I braved a quick glance up. His forehead was all knotted like he was thinking hard. He didn't look mad, but I could never tell with adults. Not bad. He crooked his finger and directed me to sit at the table by the window. I did as I was told, even though my legs felt like cement. He disappeared in his art closet for a few seconds, then came out with a huge book the size of a mailbox. He slammed the book on the table, opened it up, and pointed to a picture of a beagle. Try and draw that for me, he said, and walked away. For five minutes, I sat there trembling, my pencil frozen in my fingers, not moving a muscle. Was this a trick? Some kind of weird adult game to trap me? My daddy used to be like that. Smiling one minute like he was everybody's best friend, and then, without warning, throwing out angry words like knives, not caring much who he cut. After a very long and very painful five minutes, I finally lifted my eyes. Mr. Cap was leaning back in his chair with his feet propped on his desk. He was gazing out the window and tapping a pencil on his chin. And then he stopped, turned to me, and smiled. He smiled at me for all of two seconds, and then went back to tapping his chin. And that was it.
but something in me kind of unwound a little. I can't explain why, and I started drawing. Since that time, I'd said maybe six words to him. He still talked to me every class, though, like we were having a regular conversation. I must have drawn at least a couple dozen different dogs for him. Once in a while, one of them would show up somewhere on a wall or a bulletin board. And for a little while that day, I'd float a couple inches above the ground. So for 42 minutes, twice a week, I could unclench my stomach and relax. I was safe with Mr. Cap. That was a pretty big deal. Some kids made fun of Mr. Cap behind his back. He'd married the guy he'd lived with for 20 years once it became legal in New York. Their picture was in the paper, smiling and holding hands. I thought they looked sweet together. Happy. I hoped I could feel happy like that when I was an adult. But I did feel almost happy when I entered his class that afternoon after all the lunchtime craziness, and almost happy was good enough. There you are, Lucy, Mr. Cap said as I walked in. Like always, he wore a pale blue painter's smock, and the ends of his big black mustache were twisted, so they pointed up like a bug's antenna. He held the large cardboard box in both hands. Come here and give me a hand, he said. I need you to sort through these colored pencils and pull out all the broken ones. He leaned in closer and lowered his voice. I hope you don't mind, but I'm making you table partners with a girl who's new to the school. Her name is May Darasavath. Her family moved here from the city about a week ago, so she's probably feeling a little out of sorts. You don't have to do anything special with her, but be her usual wonderful self. That work for you, Lucy? I looked at the girl sitting at the front table. She had a long waterfall of black hair and friendly brown eyes. Sure, I said, and I brought the tub of pencils over to the table. I found out pretty quickly that for a girl who, according to Mr. Cap, was feeling a little out of sorts, she sure didn't hold back. While we both sorted the pencils, she talked to me about her little brother, who had a head like a pumpkin and who ate his boogers, about her left pinky toe, which was abnormally larger than all her other toes, but was still her favorite, about the best television show ever, called Demon Donnie, about a half-human, half-demon teenage boy who had a good heart and awesome hair and couldn't help it if everything he touched blew up and about a thousand other things all jumbled up together in words that spilled constantly out of her mouth. Once in a while, she'd turn to me and say, What do you think? And I'd just nod or mumble, Uh, yeah, great, or something just as meaningless. Sometimes I even smiled. But she didn't seem to mind keeping up the conversation for both of us. And the funny thing is, neither did I. I liked May right away, and strangely enough, I think she may have liked me. Or at least she didn't hate me, which was okay too. Whipped cream frosting with a cherry on top, I thought. By the time I stepped onto the bus after the last bell, I'd half convinced myself this year might not be as horrible as I'd imagined. After all, the honors for having the worst first day ever had to go to the lunch lady. And to be honest, I didn't feel too bad about what happened to Mrs. Dudley. Antonia was right. That woman shouldn't have talked about mom that way. I worried about Antonia, though. She didn't say much sitting next to me on the bus and kept her head buried in her backpack like she'd done at lunchtime. I wondered if her cafeteria grin was only an act, her way of pretending she wasn't bothered by Mrs. Dudley's nastiness. Or maybe she'd really convinced herself she'd made the milk bomb happen, and now she was feeling guilty about hurting someone. I touched the back of her hand. She turned it over and wrapped her fingers in mine. 
We stayed like that the whole way home. I thought about raiding my coffee can bank for the Christmas half dollars I'd been saving. A couple of fat chocolate bars from the convenience store would be just the thing to perk up my sister, especially if they had almonds. The bus slowed and let us off. As it pulled away, I tapped Antonia on the shoulder to share my candy bar idea. Before I could get a word out, she grabbed hold of my sleeve. Come on, she said, yanking me behind her as she rushed on ahead. She was smaller than me, but her grip was a steel vice, and I stumbled along as best as I could. When we got to the ginkgo tree, she pushed me hard onto the stony ground. Ouch, I said, rubbing my bottom. Watch what you're doing. Antonia didn't hear a word I said. She danced around the tree, flailing her arms, kicking up her feet, and letting loose with several ear-splitting howler monkey screams. "'What's gotten into you?' I yelled. Antonia ignored me. She stopped to watch the bus as it turned the corner. When it disappeared completely, she stuck out her tongue and blew a wet raspberry. Then she plopped herself right next to me. "'So, what did you think?' Antonia was grinning like she had at the lunch table. It was starting to get on my nerves." About what? I asked. Like how you almost broke my butt bone? Antonia groaned and rolled her eyes. Not that. You know, spoosh. She puckered her lips and wiggled her fingers in the air. Oh, the milk, I said, still rubbing. Yeah, I guess that was kind of weird. Did you see her face? The lunch lady? Sure, she was pretty upset. Antonia snorted. Serves her right. She pulled her backpack to her lap, zipped it open, and stuck her face deep inside. At first I thought she was searching for something, but then I heard her whispering. Antonia, I said. She laughed and lifted her head. It was all her idea, you know, about the milk. Wasn't that a good idea? What are you talking about, I asked. Whose idea? Whose? Hers. Her hand dove into her backpack. Sheets of paper, notebooks, and gnawed pencils were flung carelessly over her shoulder. Then she jammed her tongue in the corner of her mouth and strained at whatever was stuck in the bottom of her bag. Finally, with a loud grunt, her arm jerked free. More paper and pencils shot in all directions, followed by a huge yellow cloud that swallowed both her hands. Antonia kicked the backpack aside and smoothed the cloud in her lap until it settled into loose, blonde curls. Then she spun it around to face me the doll's head. She was holding the doll's head. Chapter 6 My stomach fluttered like it did on stormy nights when the tree branches rattled like dead bones. Maybe it was the dark space in the eye socket where Antonia had cleaned out the mud or the tiny smirk on the doll's thin lips I hadn't noticed before. Or it might have been the thought of Antonia with a battered doll's head buried in her backpack at school all day long. Ugh. I frowned. Why did you bring that to school? I told her what the lunch lady said, Antonia said, ignoring my question. She thought it was mean. She said mean people like that need to know what it feels like to be treated like garbage. Her bottom lip trembled a little. Mom's not garbage. I know, I said. Mrs. Dudley shouldn't have said those things. But why did you bring that, that thing, to school? Antonia covered the doll's ears with her hands and glared at me. She is not a thing, she whispered. She has a name. Hushabye. Like in that song Mom sings when it storms and the thunder hurts my ears. 
I sang it to her last night. She closed her eyes and warbled a little off-key. Hush-a-bye and good-night till the bright morning light takes the sleep from your eyes. Hush-a-bye, baby bright. Fine. I gritted my teeth and resisted the urge to do something hurtful. Why did you bring hush to school? Don't you know what kids would say if they saw you brought a doll's head to school? Antonia uncovered hush ears. She tilted the head toward her and smiled. They'd say, hello, pretty girl with the curly blonde hair. The urge won out. I threw a twig at Antonia and hit her smack between the eyes. No, I said as she scowled at me. They'd call you a weirdo. Is that how you want to start middle school? As the class weirdo? How do you expect to make any friends when everybody's making fun of you? Antonia's chin sunk down to her chest, and she sucked in her lips. Her pouty face. I didn't care. She had to hear the truth whether she liked it or not for her own good. If I were an only child, I wouldn't have to put up with Antonia's nonsense. The idea flashed in my brain briefly, but I let it go. This wasn't the time for mean thoughts. I don't want to make you feel bad, I said, trying to sound a little less harsh. But if you're going to make any friends this year... Hushabai asked me a question on the bus, Antonia interrupted. She was wondering where your friends were at lunch today. The question stopped me cold. Antonia's head was still down, but the doll's single green eye was looking straight at me like she already knew the answer. I don't know what you mean, I said. All the other kids sat with their friends. Antonia raised her eyes to mine. How come you didn't? I waved my hands in circles like it was no big deal. Really, I was stalling until I could think up a good excuse. Oh, that. It was, you know, I I wanted it to be just you and me for lunch, and, and wasn't that milk explosion the weirdest thing? Antonia's face brightened. The milk, she howled and doubled over with laughter. That was a good one. Must have been some kind of freak accident, I said. Relieved Antonia had stopped asking me any more questions about my non-existent friends. Antonia shook her head vigorously. No, no, no. That was Hushabai. She made it happen. She made it happen, I repeated. It wasn't the craziest story Antonia had ever made up. When she was eight, she insisted a swarm of wasp angels lived under her pillow and made her their supreme queen. Except she wasn't eight anymore. This wasn't a good sign. Maybe she'd had a hard first day in middle school, and this was her way of running from it. Running from problems was something I knew a lot about. Part of me wanted to help her, tell her she didn't need to make up stories. I'd be there for her, and I'd stop imagining what it would be like if she didn't exist. I'd be her big, strong older sister who'd protect her from all the middle school crud that might crawl under her skin and slowly worm its way into her heart. But another part of me knew that would never happen not in a million years, and wanted desperately to avoid any more questions I didn't want to answer. I knew which part would win out. How did she manage that? I asked. Antonia scratched her head. I don't understand it all exactly. It's kind of like magic, except I have to want it real bad to make it happen. Real bad. She can't just do it because she feels like it. So I asked, and I asked, and then she could do it. The asking is like a key that opens up her magic. A key? Antonia nodded. Yeah, a key that opens up a door of magic somewhere in her heart and lets it come outside. But some other kind of magic goes back inside her too and fills her up. That's the best part. She gets some magic back to herself, a good kind of magic that helps her. That's why I took you to this tree. She said something special was waiting here. 
Antonia sat hushabye against the ginkgo tree. She snaked her fingers through the dry grass around the tree's base, searching for the special whatever, her face pinched in concentration. I stood and looked vaguely around, not having a clue what I was supposed to find. Then Antonia gasped, and she pounced on a spot in the grass. Oh, oh, she squealed, holding up a fist with yellow grass blades poking through. It's true, it's true. I squinted at her balled-up fingers, trying to figure out what she'd found. Whatever it was, it couldn't be very big. Antonia opened her hand and picked out the bits of grass. She licked her thumb and rubbed at the thing in her palm. Her eyes grew big. Oh, hushabye, she whispered. It's beautiful. I craned my neck to see. What have you got? Better not be a bug. She snatched hushabye from the trunk without answering, then sat hunched over the doll with her back to me. I was a little miffed at being kept in the dark. I wasn't used to Antonia keeping secrets from me. I'm not going to sit here all day and wait for you, I said, a little snippily. All done, Antonia said. Come and see. I thought about dragging my feet so Antonia would know I wasn't happy waiting. But my curiosity got the better of me. I ran around to face her. Antonia sat cross-legged with Hushabai in her lap. Her face shone with sweat and her eyes gleamed. Look! She turned Hushabai's head so I could see the doll's face. At first it looked like the same busted-up doll's head I'd pulled out of the riverbank, only a little cleaner. Hushabai's head rocked back and forth in Antonia's fingers, and the afternoon light flashed off the doll's eyes. A strange thought crawled through my brain. It's laughing at me. Then a shiver went up my spine. I'd heard that expression before, but I'd never really understood what it meant until then like someone sliding a cold, dead finger up the middle of your back. But I didn't shiver because of some imaginary laugh I didn't hear. I shivered at what I saw. The empty space in Hushabai's left socket was now filled with a brand new, bright green eye. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.